Uh, but we're finally going to uh, get into Genesis chapter 1 as we've given several weeks of introduction to the whole of the Old Testament, into the Pentateuch, and then into Genesis itself. And here's where the fun begins. As we open up to chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis, um, there's probably not many more controversial chapters in the Bible than chapters 1 and 2. Uh, not just between you know theologians that disagree, but between uh, the natural world and science and, and with the Bible as well. So the, the task oftentimes is to try to harmonize what we read in the Bible in Genesis 1, especially with the creation of the world, with what science reveals. And you know, as Christians, most of the time when we are faced with a choice against you know, Bible and, and science, you know, we choose Bible oftentimes. We've tried to lay the foundation to say that you know, these, this passage is not really an either-or type of thing. It's not you know, really Bible or science. It's the Bible that is speaking to us for a purpose. You know, and the purpose, first and foremost, is not scientific. The purpose is that God is the creator of the world, unequivocally. Uh, that He is without equal. That everything that has come into being came into being by God. And to go through these passages of Scripture is to go through the theological teachings about who God is as Creator. So when we talk about interpretations of this chapter, there is... A lot of interpretations on how people have looked at Genesis throughout uh, the years. So on our first page, we have two columns as we talk about these interpretations. Uh, one column is what is called uh, concordist. I don't really like these terms. I found them in a book. I don't really like the terms. Uh, so with concordance, I put concordance means a more literal interpretation. So the column that is on your left those are more of your literal interpretations, looking at the Bible from a scientific view and trying to figure out Genesis 1 in a scientific way and giving the explanations to the universe and the creation of the universe in a scientific way. On the right side, the non-concordance would be a more non-literal interpretation. Here, science is not the driving force of the interpretation of Genesis 1. There are factors outside of science that drive the interpretation. Uh, most importantly, the literary aspects of the writing and the ancient world that is living in. So on one hand, you've got a science-driven interpretation. And on the other, you have more of a contextual uh, drive to the interpretation. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on these. Uh, you have the internet. You can go and look all these up. Uh, yourself, But on the left-hand side, the concordance, the more literal interpretations, first of all, we have the young earth interpretation. And this comes from the simple reading of Genesis chapter 1 taken at scientific face value. The young earth interpretation says that creation occurred about 6,000 years ago. So the all of earth in the universe is 6,000 years old. And it was created during six literal 24-hour days in the order as described in Genesis 1. And a scientific study of the earth should confirm this. Uh, if the scientific study does not confirm it, then the Bible is true and science is false. So that's your typical young earth interpretation. However, science does contradict the age of the earth, obviously being 6,000 years old. So how do the question then becomes, well, science kind of definitively says that the earth is way more than 6,000 years old. So how do we harmonize these six literal days and this creation in Genesis with science? And so the rest of these interpretations try to harmonize these ideas. So the first way that the scripture tries to, or that the interpretation tries to harmonize is what we call the gap interpretation or the gap theory. The gap theory says that there is a gap in time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the gap theory says a long time ago, way in the past, God created the heavens and the earth. Then there was a gap of time between Genesis 1-2, when the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then what comes out of Genesis 1-2 
is not a created earth, but a restored earth. That, co- that there was a cosmic chaos that happens between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And there's a large gap in time. And what is in Genesis 1-3 on is a restored creation that happened about 6,000 years ago. So the gap interpretation says, Earth was created long ago, then became formless and empty through a chaotic state and was restored about 6,000 years ago during six literal 24-hour days. So there's a little bit of your compromise and how you can explain science saying the earth is millions and billions of years old, and the Bible seemingly saying the earth is 6,000 years old. And then the next is what we call the day-age interpretation. That means that creation occurred over billions of years. Each day of Genesis 1's core... Genesis 1 corresponds to a long epoch of time. So, you know, day one, all of the light and everything was created over a long, long period of time. It's not a literal 24-hour day. Uh, the events are occurred in order given in the text, but stretched out over a long, long period of time. And that's interpreter's way of trying to stay faithful to the text, still trying to harmonize with scientific uh, data in the world. And then we have the, a- the appearance of age interpretation. This is that creation occurred about 6,000 years ago during six literal 24-hour days. However, but God created it looking like it was billions of years old. Uh, But it was created to look like it had a long history of billions of years. So God created it 6,000 years ago, but He created it to look like it was billions of years old. So these four, your your major Christian interpretations, trying to harmonize science, and the Bible. With this, again, science is the driving force because we're trying to harmonize these two. So that primarily sees Genesis chapter 1 with the emphasis of Genesis chapter 1 being science. Now on our right-hand side of the paper is our non-concordist interpretations or our non-literal. None of these really take science into consideration because it does not believe that the purpose Uh, The original intended purpose of Genesis chapter 1 is scientific. They believe it's more literal and historical, that it teaches truths without having to be 100% scientifically accurate. Uh, The first one, I had never really heard of the first one before uh, digging into this, but it's what is obviously called the Proclamation Day Interpretation which says the days of Genesis 1 took place in God's throne room that God is creating from His throne room in heaven, uh, wherein God proclaimed each step of creation. These days are not related to time or days on the earth. I haven't given much thought into that one, so that's one you can Google if that uh, piques your interest. Uh, The next three, the creation poem interpretation. Now, my journey as one who has given my life to studying the Bible, you know, Younger in my days in Bible college days, the emphasis was always on the left side of the column. So it was always scientific. So when I was in Bible college, you know, I took you know, creation science and, you know, I learned about all the gap theory and all the, you know, things in the gap theory and the young earth and old earth creation. And, and that's where a lot of my time was spent because that's who taught me that was their emphasis. Over the past several years, I have grown more into understanding and learning about the ancient culture. You know, when your emphasis is on science, you don't really emphasize the ancient culture that, that we, Genesis was written in. Uh, so in the past several years, you know, I've learned more about the ancient culture around Genesis, which is where your right side comes out of. So the first one is your creation poem interpretation. This is the number and the ordering of the days in Genesis are chosen for poetic or thematic reasons rather than historical or scientific reasons reasons. That means Genesis 1 is a type of literature. It's a elevated uh, prose. It's, it's more poetic. It's beautiful. It's meant to convey a story in a beautiful way. So it's not scientific-based. It's literature-based, again, in order to teach us about God. Uh, and you can see that in the way it's written. You can see that in a lot of the uh, in a lot of the sevens, you know, we have a lot of sevens that are a part of, of Genesis chapter 1. We have a lot of, uh, 
you know, repetition that's a part of Genesis chapter 1. The Hebrew words, um, even the words for in the beginning, the words for formless and void, they rhyme in the Hebrew. Uh, so there is no doubt when you look at it from a literature standpoint, there is an emphasis on the words, the rhyme, uh, the, the symmetry of what things are, how things are happening in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, so there is no doubt an elevated type of language that is used here in Genesis. The next thing that we have is the kingdom and temple interpretation. This is as king, God gave humans dominion as in a land grant covenant, and God inaugurates the cosmos as his temple. In both cases, the text is not focused on the physical universe. This is saying that the creation in Genesis chapter 1 mirrors what was a common thought in the ancient world, is that every god had a temple. Uh, in the ancient world, many of the temples that the gods had came with a seven-day ceremony of celebrating the god. At the end of the ceremony, the temple would be dedicated. The god would put, or the people would put an image in the temple that would symbolize the god, and they would worship the image. And when the image is placed in the finished temple, the image would have been said to rest in the temple. So imagery in Genesis chapter 1 mirrors imagery that happened in the ancient Near East with the emphasis from the Scripture being that earth is God's temple. This is His creation. He created it. This is His universe. This is His world. This is where He rules. This is God's temple. And God has placed man as His image, His representative, not to be worshipped, but to point back to the Creator. And when all of creation is finished and man is created as God's image, then God Rest. So people have drawn parallels between temple ceremonies in the ancient world and between what is going on in Genesis chapter 1, which would certainly speak to ancient people in those times. And then finally, uh, the fourth one here is the ancient Near East cosmology interpretation. This says that Genesis 1 matches the physical picture of the world believed in the ancient Near Eastern religions but presents a different theological picture, proclaiming one God is creator of all rather than many gods. And this, what this simply means is, as we've talked about in the ancient world, there were many stories from all of the nations in Mesopotamia and all around Israel. There was Egypt and Mesopotamia and Ugarit and all these places. And they all had stories of creation of how the world came into being. Many stories of creation in the ancient world had began with a chaotic, water-covered world. And you had the gods, which in the ancient Near East were many gods. You know, they were fighting for supremacy. Uh, you know, they had lesser gods rebelling against greater gods, which caused the world to be in a chaotic state. And, uh, and then... And then sometimes the creation of the world came because the gods, you know, you know, were fruitful and produced a world and all kind of crazy ideas. And so what the ancient Near East cosmology is saying is that the scripture, the Hebrew scripture, used similar pictures, similar language, similar imagery as the ancient world around them when it came to creation. But how they taught God through that was radically different than how the other narratives teach their gods through this. So even though there's similar imagery and pictures in the story of Genesis 1, as there are in other creation accounts, God is totally different. You know, first of all, there's not many gods, there's only one God. Uh, it didn't come from the gods fighting or it didn't come out of the gods themselves were in chaos and the world reflected that. What you find in Genesis is God creating the world very orderly, very purposefully, which is different and distinct from the other 
uh, ancient Near East stories. Uh, the role of mankind is different in the biblical story as opposed to the other ancient Near East stories. Um, in the ancient Near East stories, uh, the humans were created to serve God. They would literally bring the gods food uh, and they would serve them and they were kind of an afterthought. In the biblical story, mankind takes a prime place in creation. The world was created with him in mind to be able to function and to be able to do what God had called him to do. And it's not man was created to provide God food. It was God created man and provided him food. So the ancient Near East cosmology says that it's not scientific, but yet the ancients used these, the same language and the same imagery, but presented God, Yahweh, as totally different. And we find a distinct different picture of God here than we do in any other place. So you can you know, dig more on, on some of those uh, interpretations, but just know half of these interpretations are driven by science, and that's the emphasis in harmonizing the Bible with science. The other is driven by literature and the ancient world and the original intent of conveying these messages. So those are just ways that, that this scripture has been looked at very differently throughout the years. Now let's get into the text itself. Let's get into the text itself. I'm trying not to confuse my papers. I'm working off of two different papers. The one that you have and the extended version that I have. And it's confusing me. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, in verses 1 and 2, this is kind of our introductory statement to the whole thing. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this is our introductory statement in the first two verses, and it does two things. Number one, it declares God's existence. In the beginning, God. Again, as we mentioned last week, it does not describe God's existence. It does not defend God's existence. It states the fact that there is a God and that in the beginning was God and in the beginning God created. So in the beginning, God, it first declares God's existence. Secondly, it asserts God's absolute sovereign power through creation. Uh, the phrase that is oftentimes taken from these verses to deal with creation is that God created the universe and all of creation out of nothing. That God took nothing and made everything. And this doctrine is called creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And it emphasizes that God did not require any pre-existing substance in order to create. You know, we can create a lot of things as humans, but we have to have a little something to create. If you're going to create a painting, you've got to have paint brushes and paint and a canvas. If you're going to create a meal, you have to have ingredients and things to cook with. But creation ex nihilo says God did not need any of that. He created the elements that creation, that formed creation and how creation came to be. And um, taking this idea of creation, we see that in verse 2, God creates the heaven and the earth. In verse 2, the creation is formless and void. It is in a chaotic state, and it is empty. So what God is going to do from here on out is He's going to take this chaotic world that is covered with water, because everything, the, the whole earth is covered in water at this point, and he's going to bring creation out of the chaotic water. So verse 1 declares that God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 describes the condition that the earth was in, formless and empty in a chaotic state. But when God is finished with it, it's going to be ordered, it's going to be purposeful, and God is going to be seen as the one that has created it and is guiding the course of the world. What we see in verse 2 as well we see the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then so we note here 
that in this we see a force where we see the Trinity in here. We see God as the creator. We see the Spirit hovering over the waters. And verse 3 says, and God said. That is God's word. Well, we know from the rest of the Bible, we're not told here, we have to wait for that revelation throughout the rest of the narrative, but we know from John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and there was not anything made that the Word did not make. So we see Jesus revealed as the Word of God. So right here in the first few sentences of the Bible, we see God, we see the Spirit hovering, and we see the Word in action that God said. Now as we go down and we look uh, from verses 3 down to verse number 25 in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God creatively steps into this chaotic abyss and transforms it and orders it and creates in it. And what we see is we see that the uh, is highly structured. And this is where your more, you know, poetic type people would come in and they say, you know, look at the order and the structure of everything. What we see in the creation account is highly structured, uh, and it's using repetition, it's using symmetry, and it presents God as the one who takes what was without purpose or function and creates an ordered cosmos using a framework of formulas. So there are seven formulas that primarily follow this pattern when God creates in Genesis chapter 1. First of all, there is, is an announcement. And God said. I mean, just as, and God said, let there be light. So God said, that's the announcement. Next is the command. And God said, let there be. That's the commandment. When God commanded light, when he commanded the earth to come forth, he said, let there be. After the commandment is the description and God separated the light from the dark. God separated the dry land from the seas, or God made, or God set forth. So it follows the announcement, the commandment, and the description. Then there was the report. What happened after God said? It happened, and it says, and there was, or and it was so. Then was the naming, and he called. He called the darkness night, called the light day. It was the naming. Then the evaluation. He looked at it and he said it was good. And then the conclusion would be, and there was evening and morning, or the evening and morning were the first day or the second day. So in Genesis 3 through 25, we have these days. So let's read through that, a little bit through this at least. In verse number 3 of Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Because everything was just water. And let there be an expanse or a firmament in the midst of the water. And it separated the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above, and it was so. And he called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So the expanse, in fact, we'll go ahead and stop here and do this. The expanse is what was called the firmament, and it separated, it kept waters below it and above it apart. So what you will find as you read through this, as you read other phrases throughout the Bible, you see a totally different picture of the earth and the heavens than what we know of today. In fact, to you know, the ancient mind, or to our mind, let's just take our mind first. When we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know what comes into your mind, but what pops up in my mind is you got the black space, and then you've got stars that pop up, and then you've got planets floating around, and then you've got earth, this big ball of earth that's in the middle of it. So when I, when I hear God created the heavens and the earth, that, that's where my mind goes. My mind goes to stars, planets, globe, 
heavens and the earth and, and everything in it. The ancients didn't really know what we know today. In fact, many of the ancients, they looked at the sun, the moon, and the stars as gods themselves. So when, in an ancient mind, when God created the heavens and the earth, it would be literally what I see above me and what is below me. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, then there's this firmament. And there's this firmament. And this firmament is this solid dome that is literally holding back waters above it. So you have the waters of heaven that are sitting on the globe, and you've got the waters underneath the earth, and the earth has come out. So they don't picture a globe. They picture here's the ground. The waters have covered it, but the ground's come out of the waters. Then you've got waters above a firmament that is holding the waters back. And the only way the waters above the firmament can get in is because there are floodgates. There's gates in the midst of the firmament. And so if you would turn to the very back of your paper... This is what the ancients thought the world, the heavens and the earth were. That's a little different than what we look at. There's not a globe. You know, they were the first flat earthers. So you have the earth. You have Sheol, which was the underworld where the, the dead go. And then the Bible talks about there were pillars holding up the earth. So you have pillars of the earth that held up the earth, surrounded by this primeval ocean, and then you have this solid firmament above the heavens. And this solid dome is holding back the ocean of heaven. And so when the flood comes, waters come up, the floodgates are open, it says, and the waters come down from the ocean of the heaven. And then above the firmament, you have the heaven of heavens where God was at. So, I mean, just looking at this and looking at the descriptions, you can see the ancients live in a totally different world, a totally different mindset and vision of the world than we have. And the Bible reflects that. And that's okay. And that's okay. Some people would look at that and they would have issues and, and you know, they try to say, well, all this stuff was here and then it, it wasn't. And then you get into, you're trying to vehemently defend the Bible in order for it to be true. But if you understand the ancient world, you understand what's going on in the Bible, you understand its purpose, you know, these things don't throw me off anymore. In fact, it's even more fascinating uh, than it was before. It's a whole lot less pressure trying to defend, you know, everything when you look at it from a different perspective. So that's the ancient cosmology that is painted in the Bible, not, you know, and, and we still use ancient terms. We know that, what do we call it? Sunrise and sunset. How many of you know the sun does not rise and the sun does not set? We still use ancient terms, even though scientifically we know, you know that the earth is spinning around the sun, which causes the appearance of the sun to rise and the appearance of the sun to set. But we still use those terms today, uh, even though we know better. So we use ancient terms. So they would have seen the sun rise and the sun set. Anybody who doesn't know any better would say, yeah, the sun rises and the sun sets. You know, it's only when you learn stuff and things are revealed and technology that you're like, okay, that's not what it is. So this is a picture, and I just find this is an interesting picture. I, I, I find it really interesting for some reason. It's, it's a really cool picture. It's, it looks more fun than what we have today, but that's, that's, that's the ancient world. So... We have this firmament being created. What is the firmament? Well, we know that as the sky around us. You know, we know there's not a globe, that there's waters, there's an ocean above us that's just waiting to, for the floodgates to, to open. We certainly see that in the flood, and we'll get to that next week. But we see this firmament in the heaven being created, the heavens and the earth. Uh, in verse number 9, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. So the dry land was already there. Now he said, just let it appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let uh, the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants 
yielding seed according to his own kind, and trees bearing fruit, and each of his own kind, and God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse in the heavens, and separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and season and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God called the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heaven. He set them up within the firmament and gave them light to the earth to rule over the day and to, uh, over the night to separate the light from the darkness. He saw it was good in the evening and morning or the fourth day. So, I mean, we can keep reading, but we know all of this. Um, so creation is arranged in this seven-day period. Uh, if you notice here in our little chart on your paper, the days parallel. The last three days parallel the first three days. So on day one, you have light. Now we know naturally light comes from the sun. The presence of the sun gives light. The absence of the sun creates darkness. So somehow... You know, and this, is, and this is where scientists get hung up. Somehow you have light on day one without the sun because the sun is not created until day four. But what you're seeing here is that God is creating the space in day one, day two, and day three, and then he fills the space in day four, day five, and day six. So on day one, you have, he separates the light, he creates light, and then in day four, he places the sun, the moon, and the stars in the space. So day one and day four correspond. Day two is when he creates the expanse, the firmament, the sky that separates the waters. On day five, he fills the space he created in day two with birds and fish. On day three, he creates the dry ground and the land with the plants. And day six, he fills it with animals and man to keep the ground and to have dominion over the animals. So you see the first three days, God creates the space. And the last three days, God fills it. So people will say, you know, that this, that's why they see this is more of poetry. There's parallelism that is there that's not there by accident. Could it have happened that way? Literally, absolutely. Absolutely, it could have happened that way. You know, could it be, you know, that... Just trying to teach us form and function of this, of this earth could be that as well. So we go through these six days, and then on the seventh day we see God resting. Uh, when we get down to verse 26 through 31, we see man made in God's image. Let's, let's pick up that in Genesis 1.26. In Genesis 1.26 it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. A couple of interesting things there. First of all, God says, let us. So now we go into the discussion of who is the us. And there's been a lot of, again, speculation over who is the us. Um, you know, us evangelicals would probably say the us is the Trinity. The same ones we've seen in verses 1 and 2 and 3 with the Father, the Spirit, and the Word. Other speculation is that the us could have been the God, along with the angelic hosts, that man was created in the image of God and the angelic being, the host, the angels. Thirdly, there is another ancient belief, uh, which is almost which can be alluded to in some passages, but every ancient Near East religion believed that there was a pantheon of gods. They believed that there was usually one supreme God, but he had rulers. So there's something within some beliefs, and I don't really hold to this so much, uh, but there's a belief of what is called the divine council, that God, along with other lesser gods, ruled the world and were sent out over the nations and, and over the peoples, and that this is God among other gods saying, let us. So you've got the divine council view, you've got the, the God and the heavenly beings view, or you've got the trinity view of who is the us in the let us make man. But anyway, he says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And one interesting thing here is that, um, you know, when God creates, 
he usually speaks to the source when he is when he is filling uh, when he's filling the earth with the sun, moon, and the stars. You know, let the earth bring forth. So he speaks to the earth. Let the earth bring forth. And this is bring forth. You know, let the the waters bring forth. So when God wants you know plants, he speaks to the earth because the earth is the source of the plants. So when he wants fish, he speaks to the waters because the Waters, because the fish live in the water. When he creates man, he doesn't speak to the earth. He speaks to himself. Let us make man. Uh, so they're seeing something is different and special about mankind. But he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the creation of mankind. So mankind we see here is distinct from the other creations. Um, it's distinct from all other created creatures, and also uh, man will be someone who will be God's representative on the earth, his image on the earth. So mankind is God's image bearers that represent him on the earth and manages the world for the benefit of all. So when you talk about the image of God, there's two primary features. First of all is the essence of man and the function of man. The essence of man is that we share qualities and characteristics with our creator that other creation doesn't do uh, so and the biggest one is that we have the ability to reason we are logical reasoning creatures just like god is we possess a soul we possess a soul there is a spiritual part to us just like God is a spirit. Just as God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a tripart being, man is spirit, soul, and body. We are tripart being as well. Uh, we have self-consciousness about ourselves. We are moral creatures. We have ethical conduct. Whereas nature just kills and be kills, and that's not how humans operate. Um, humans have the ability to have a relationship with God. So all of these characteristics are the way we reason, the way we think, the way we operate, our ethical values. All of these things are the essence of our Creator. And then our function is humans' function that are made to rule and subdue creation as God's representatives on the earth. God gave mankind dominion over the earth just like He has dominion. So in the image of God, we see man with his essence and man with his function. Uh, the image of God is not a physical thing. A lot of people try to you know, make it a physical thing. Um, you know, it's not first and foremost a physical thing if it is at all, because number one, God inherently doesn't have a body, even though he can appear in a body, bodily form. And he's given bodily characteristics. Um, you know, he, he breathes, he has a mouth, he has a tongue so he can speak, he has hands so he can form that's called anthropomorphic terms that we give human qualities to a spirit God that feels all in all. You know, how that works, I don't know, but it works somehow because God is God. Um, but yet, being created in God's image is not first and foremost our physical being and appearance. It's our essence and the qualities of who we are and what makes us distinct as humans. And then the function that we are to have dominion in the earth. Going into chapter 2, we find after the six days of creation, God rests on the seventh day. Uh, this is, of course, establishing a Sabbath, which would become very important in Israel. Uh, you know, the Ten Commandments trace the origins of the Sabbath back to creation. Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man's benefit, so we see the established work week. You know, six days, one day of rest. We see that established here in Genesis 1. Um, in Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse number 4, let's, let's read that. Genesis chapter 2 
So Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 ends with the heavens and the earth were finished. And it ends with God resting and God blessing the seventh day. Then in verse 4, we find an interesting worded phrase. And the interesting worded phrase is this in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature or a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man that he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it begins here in verse 4 that many people looked at as seen as kind of an unnatural break and almost a new beginning. And it begins with these are the generations of the heaven and the earth. So you've got two main thoughts of what this is. You have some people that describe this as a second creation story and a contradictory creation story. And that's what we talked about last week when people that believe that the, that the Pentateuch was taken from four different sources. They believe chapter 1 was taken from one source and beginning in chapter 2, 4, that was taken from another source. Here's why they believe that. Number one is because the sequence of things are different. It's a different account. We don't see the same thing in chapter 2 happening as we do in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the name Yahweh is used exclusively as opposed to Elohim. That is in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, we do not see the divine name of God. In chapter 2, it is exclusively using the divine name of God, Yahweh. So that's why they say these are taken from two different sources. In chapter 1, God speaks to creation, to existence. God, in chapter 2, God is seen more as a part, uh, potter or artisan. He's more hands-on. He forms, he, he makes. You don't see him primarily speaking to create. You see him working to create. And number four, uh, the literary type changes. In chapter one, you, know, you have these stanzas, everything is parallel. Uh, and then in chapter two, you move more toward a narrative, a story. So the literature is different. So therefore, you have some that look very critical at this and say, well, this is contradictory. Chapters 1 and 2 contradict each other. You know, and I've tried to understand the viewpoint, but to me, I don't see it at all. I mean, I, I see the differences, but as you read in the next one, I believe the emphasis is different. Just like the emphasis of chapter 12 of Genesis is different from the emphasis of 1 through 11. Chapter 1 establishes God as the creator of the world and the universe, and chapter 2 establishes specifically God as the creator of man and being very intimate with him. So others see chapter 2 as the continuation of chapter 1 rather than a break in the story. So the emphasis going from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is from chronological events to logical and topical events. You have the chronological events of creation to now he's switching to something that is more topical that deals specifically with a specific area of creation. So the emphasis, number two, is from all creation to mankind. Number three, it's from simplified creation of man. Specifically, God created man in his own image to a more detailed creation of man. He formed man out of the dust of the ground. So we have what is in chapter two is more detailed than chapter one. And, cha and number four, we have the emphasis from the cosmic world to a local garden. So you see the story beginning to take shape in chapter two. And number five, God's relationship to the world as Elohim versus God's relationship to a couple, to people, as Yahweh, seeing him more as a covenant God in relation because he's dealing more primarily with people. You know, I don't look at these two as a huge critical matter for me personally. I see the purpose as being different. I see in chapter two, beginning with this creation of Adam and Eve, I see the story and them putting and God putting them in a garden of Eden. That's setting up for chapter three, which is setting up for chapter four. So now we're getting more into a narrative story. So as the story goes, we'll just get that out of the way. So as the story goes, 
God creates a garden. He plants a garden in the middle of Eden. So Eden was already there, and God puts a garden in Eden. In the midst of this garden is a tree. And this tree is defined as the tree of life. And we'll talk about the tree of life. Then, uh, opposed from the tree of life, there is what is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God tells, he says, you can eat from any tree of the garden. Please eat from any tree of the garden, including the tree of life. But don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. So these two trees that are emphasized in the garden, one leads to life, one leads to death. Um, the tree of life is at the center of the garden. It says it's in the midst. In the midst means it's in the center. You know, given the picture of that, it's the central focus of the garden. And eating of this tree of life gives us the potential for life in its highest potency. It represents life that transcends the natural. Then you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's much speculation of what that good and evil was. I won't go into all of that. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ultimately boils down to man discerns good from evil. He begins to make his own choices about good and evil, which essentially will make man his own moral authority, which would lead to rebellion. Because knowing good and evil would be to make them like God in ways God did not want them to be like God. So humans would, uh, could become their own more authority, which would lead to rebellion against God's authority and establish himself as God, which is exactly what we will see happen in the next chapter. So God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat thereof you will surely die. And death there, obviously our first connotation is physical death, but Adam did not physically die in the day that he ate of it. He didn't physically drop dead. Some people say, well, the death process begun, which is possible. And then also you have death not being primarily a physical thing, but a spiritual thing. And the day you eat thereof, because death, I mean, the flat meaning of death is a separation. Physical death is a separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. Spiritual separation would be, or spiritual death would be the separation in relationship between man and God, the creator and the creation. So we definitely see that happen because we see Adam and Eve's eyes were open. They realized they were naked and ashamedly hid from God causing separation. So we have these two trees being played out. And then we see uh, toward the end of this uh, chapter, we have God creating all the animals for, to give man some company, but there was not a suitable helper for him. So he causes man to fall into a deep sleep, and he takes one of his ribs from his side and creates a helpmate for him, creates woman for him. And there we see God dividing the human race into male and female, giving them distinct identities and distinct roles. Uh, traditionally, the passage has been seen for the foundation of the view of male and female relations. Thus, we see the divine institute of marriage in the closing verses of chapter 2, where God says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and will cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we see this being played out there. So what do we have in these first two? Well, we have a lot in these first two chapters. So the emphasis that we see here, I've listed five emphasis. I could have probably went through and listed more, but I just ran out of time. Uh, number one, God created creation. God is the sovereign creator, over the, giving us a dividing line. Here's the creation, here's the creator. Many ancient deities, again, worship the creation. They worship the stars, they saw the stars and the sun and the moon as gods. They worship the trees, they worship all of this as gods themselves. Genesis tells us the creation is not God. The creator is God. Therefore, because God created creation, number two, God is sovereign. 
self-sufficient and supreme. He didn't need a pantheon of gods. He didn't get together and fight with all these lesser gods and creation just popped into being because they were having a fight one day. Or God didn't need anybody else to help him with creation. He created it all on his own, sovereign, self-sufficient, and supreme. God created mankind, male and female, in his image distinct from all, create, all the creatures with his essence and a special function for them. So man is a created being, submitted to the creator, but yet made in the image of the creator, made in the likeness of the creator. Which leads us, I don't think I mentioned this, but uh, the creation of mankind, the likeness and image of God, it's in my big notes that I left, or my long notes that I left a long time ago. Man created in the image of God solidifies the foundation of human dignity and the sanctity of life, which later on, you know, in a few chapters would be established, you know, that if you take a life, your life would be taken because you took a life that was created and that was made in the image of God. So we see the human dignity that all humans you know, should have dignity because they are created in the image of God. And then we have uh, the sanctity of human life in the midst of that as well. Um, out of this, number four, out of the first two chapters come three uh, human institutions, marriage, work, and Sabbath. You have marriage, man and woman, you have work, six days, and then you have rest, Sabbath, establishing the Sabbath. And then, number five, you have God determined that true life should not be lived independent of Him by our own moral determinations, thus becoming our own God. We should not live independent of God, thinking that we know as much as God and that we can rule our own lives and determine what is right and wrong from us. God established we should live dependent of Him. So.